y'all and welcome to the history of networking at the network collective today we're sitting in the virtual museum talking to roland dobbins who worked on the problem of countering distributed denial of service attacks from the very very beginning but before we jump to roland i want to see i see yvonne is here um so yvonne i heard you went to see a ninja movie did you learn any new uh, tricks for getting your vendors in line <laughs> it was uh it was the lego ninja movie so not really Oh, come on. Only in like square angular movements, (laughs) which I don't think is going to help too much. Morning, Donald. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. You look like you're in a recording. Look, you even got the black mug there. (laughs) that's really cool and then over here in the other corner we have roland dobbins on one side we have ddos and on the other side we have roland dobbins and roland has been working on this for a long time roland why don't you tell us about yourself where you work and a little bit about your history before we get into the history of ddos sure Um, hi everyone and thanks for having me here on the network collective uh, history history of computing networking uh, podcast and videocast. Um, my name is Roland Dobbins, and I'm a principal engineer uh, for a company called Arbor Networks. And I've been in the industry for 32 years now, and I've been fighting DDoS attacks on the public internet for 22 of those years. And by trade, I'm uh, I'm a network engineer, a router monkey. But in order to have a, a functioning network, you have to keep it up and running, um, even in the face of attack. And so I tend to focus on availability and resiliency and have done that for a good chunk of my uh, of my career um, in the networking industry a so, small um, company called arbor company small company called arbor networks um <laughs> we we um we we tend to we specialize a bit in terms of um, ddos detection and classification and trace back um and before that uh, i worked at cisco Prior to that, I was with um, what used to be called Bell Atlantic and Data General. I go go way back because I'm old. So I've uh, been, been doing this for quite some time. I was actually wondering, you, I, I heard you, uh, 30, you said 32 years there. Is that what you said, 32 years? Yeah, I'm old. 32 years. 32 years and how many months and how many days? <laughs> it was March 6th. So if, if I can calculate back that far. Who knows um, that? Yeah, I'm, 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 com- I'm coming up on 33. I'm coming up on 33 years. I I'm certainly old. don't know what day. <laughs> no, I remember it very well. That's a story for another time. Though. <laughs> uh, so why don't you kick us off and tell us a little bit about the first DDoS attack. And you said you worked at Cisco and I think that was a Barry Green and I knew you back at Cisco back in the day. And I think Donald was, was there as well. Um, you know, everybody started at Cisco except Yvonne. Everybody who used to work at Cisco, raise your hands. No. <laughs> odd man out again. <laughs> sure. There's um, worse things well, to be odd man out for. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, so if, if we take a look back, well, let's, let's first of all, let's talk about DDoS attacks to make sure we're on the same page and have a common definition. Um, DDoS attacks are attacks against availability. And they generally are attacks very specifically against capacity and or state. And the concept of DDoS attacks goes back a long ways, uh, back into the into the uh, early 1960s with the public switch telephone network. That's where we really first got 
the concept of denial of service in general. And you may remember, this was the time when a lot of phone freaks were learning how to manipulate the phone system to do things like uh, get free long distance phone calls and um, set up conference bridges with hundreds of people on them for free. And um, they also were able to, to sometimes control switches to turn off telephone service to businesses, to apartment buildings and, and residents and things like that. And that was a form of denial of service attack. And so, so um, uh, Ma Bell at the time sat down to start looking at the problem and started to introduce some basic protections against um, denial of service attacks in their electronic switches that they started to introduce in the mid-1960s. And uh, we also got DDoS attacks, which means we have multiple um, uh, sources of attack traffic uh, used to do things like shut down entire telephone exchanges sometimes. So all of this goes back um, more than 50 years to the public switch telephone network before we ever you know, dreamt about packet-based networking back in the, in the circuit switch days. And then we can fast forward a little bit, um, uh, late 1970s, um, uh, TCP IP uh, is running on, on ARPANET. And of course, there was the very famous uh, Xerox Palo Alto Research Center or PARC network. And one of the, or a couple of the researchers there decided that they wanted to um, investigate properties of programs that would self-replicate. And they had run, they'd read a science fiction novel uh, called Shockwave Wave Rider oh, by John Brenner. That's always a bad thing. Yes, that's <laughs> right. And, 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 there, and there was a concept in, in that novel. It's a great novel if you haven't read it. That um, was called The Tapeworm, which was kind of the equivalent of, of self-replicating code. And so these researchers decided to, to write um, a tapeworm for the park network. It was running on XNS. Xerox networking system protocol. And, you know, the, it, it was harmless and, you know, the replicate from computer to computer. And they started, you know, playing around with it and, and tweaked it a bit. And then they went home. And then the following day they came down, came, came back to work and the entire network was down. None of the machines could, could talk to one another. And it turned out that their um, tapeworm, or we kind of shortened it to worm, had such aggressive propagation characteristics it was causing network communications problems on the on the park network. And so that's kind of the, the first uh, traffic excursion that led to a, uh, a DDoS attack that we know about on um, on packet switch networks. And we can, we can move forward a little bit in history. I'm sure everyone here probably remembers or at least read about uh, the the internet worm. Uh, Robert Robert Morris uh, Jr wrote the internet, the, the original ARPANET worm that was designed to explore and, and catalog systems running vulnerable versions of SendMail. And of course, its propagation characteristics were also um, very aggressive and it ended up bringing down ARPANET essentially uh, in 1988. So the first DDoS attacks that we saw were accidental DDoS attacks. They weren't actually intentional on, on uh, packet switch networks. But then we moved forward a little bit, little, little bit further in time does anyone here remember IRC, Internet Relay Chat? Oh, uh, yes. In yeah, fact, now that I remember, remember we still, still use it. it. I know. I was going to say we still <laughs> use it. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so IRC um, you know, was a distributed network that was built on you know, multiple servers that would join together um, across um, ARPANET and then the Internet to allow people to join in chat. But the thing is, when you would join um, an IRC server, you could, if you wanted to create a channel um, to talk about networking, you could say, you know, slash join hash networking. And if that channel were already there and populated, you'd be in it with other people. Or if nobody was there, 
you actually were promoted to what's called an operator. You had ops in the channel. So you could, um, you could ban people, you could invite people, you could give other people operator privileges and things like that. But the problem was when you left the channel, then you no longer had ops. And if everybody left the channel, then the channel went away and, and uh, somebody else could try to, to use that same channel and, and take it over. So um, someone wrote a, a, a bot to, to actually enable uh, channel control on IRC servers. It's called the egg drop bot. It's written in Perl and folks would run this on a shell account on some Unix machine in the university and have it join uh, an IRC network like FNet. And it would recognize, it would stay in the channel all the time, even when the other interactive users were logged out. They would give it, it, it ops privileges and it, they would tell it which uh, users should have ops privileges and, and who, who, when, when they would join the, uh, the IRC channel, they would get promoted and that kind of thing. And then a lot of these bots were linked together across channels and even IRC networks to form kind of a backstairs network. And so that's where the first botnet really came from. And in the early days uh, of IRC, this is back in the day when we had um, DRM software. And so there was this whole where scene and the term zero day, if you've heard that in, in the context of computer security, it actually came from the where scene where somebody would take uh, a commercial software package like, you know, I don't know, Ashton Tate uh, DB3 or something and crack it and then post it um, uh, on the internet, you know, on FTP sites, things like that for people to be able to download. And so there was a very heavy where scene uh, on IRC and there was a lot of, um, a lot of social credit a lot of karma that was associated with being the first to be able to announce crack software. And people would fight about this. They would claim, Oh, I have a zero day on, you know, DB3. So I else would say, no, I didn't. And so the, the egg drop bots had the capability to send um, IRC connections to IRC clients through a couple of different protocols. One was called DCC. The other one was called CTCP. And folks modified these egg drop bots so that they could essentially be used to send so many CTCP requests or so many DCC requests that they would flood people off the IRC networks. And so the origin of botnets is IRC and um, botnet driven DDoS attacks were on IRC. And so these very first DDoS attacks on what we now call the internet that were launched by bots were actually application layer attacks with DCC and CTCP. So that's where so we why would they, to see why, them on the internet at large. Why would they flood people off of IRC channels just to keep them off? Or was it because of the zero day or was it? <laughs> you know, they, somebody would claim, oh, I have a zero day, you know, for this, for this commercial piece of commercial software. And somebody else would say, no, no, I have it. And they would argue and they would start slanging one another and, and would do that. And then, you know, they, it wasn't just related to the way we're seeing the people in general, if they were, you know, having conflicts on IRC channels, if they had access to some egg drop bots, they would just flood people off the network. And some of the early IRC clients, um, the, the authors of those clients realized that this was a problem and they actually put some protections into some of the IRC clients to rate limit the amount of these layer seven CTCP and DCC messages that the IRC clients would, pro would process. And so that's actually the first intentional DDoS protection was also on the IRC network in, in, in the IRC wow. clients, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> now we need so DDoS detection on now we need DDoS detection on, on Slack channels. That's right. Um, so so that, that that's where the concept first arose. And then folks started playing around with this concept of bots and also started looking at other protocols. And ICMP was a was a, a popular protocol. You know, ICMP is used for ping. 
And um, it was very common. It was allowed across ARPANET and, and the other networks that, that comprise the nascent internet. And so folks started experimenting with this. And you may remember, uh, ICMP used to have an option that was called source quench. And that was actually deprecated by the IETF, I think, in what, 1993, 1994. And the reason it was... Yeah, somewhere like that. And the reason it was deprecated was because it could actually be utilized to, to DDoS uh, any kind of TCP center and basically, you know, shut down uh, their TCP sessions. And that was, it was, it was deprecated because of, of that abuse that we started to see. And so, across, you know, outside of IRC specifically, we first started to see those ICMP DDoS attacks around 1992, 1993, something like that. So what's interesting is you brought up these unintentional DDoS attacks, and I think that's much more common than people think it is. Um, I remember working on Banco Rio when I was in the escalation team at Cisco, uh, and they had misinstalled a piece of software that was a backup software. And what it did was, is it did subnet broadcasts looking for all of its clients. And they had installed like a thousand copies of this thing in their network. And so it was doing every, every one of those installations was, was doing a subnet broadcast walking the entire classical IP address space. And it essentially took out EIGRP. And it was not intentional. It was just like, oh, we just installed the software in the wrong way. And boom, we now have a DDoS. And so I think it's, <laughs> it's pretty cool. That kind of thing is really common. And it actually points out something that's an interesting premise that's held true across all the years is that uh, one of the reasons that DDoS attacks, in fact, probably the main reason that successful DDoS attacks do succeed in their objective of, of knocking people or services off the internet is because the defenders are extremely um, poorly prepared and the networks that they build and the application stacks that they, and services that they set up and, and deploy are very brittle and fragile and non-scalable and full of state. And so that it, those kinds of problems, network management systems, you know, polling with SNMP, for example, those kinds of things, it's very, very common for those to cause an unintentional DDoS attack. And speaking of, of directed broadcast, this was actually, uh, well, we had the first SIM flood that was in 1994 um, against, uh, it was launched against an, uh, an ISP in, in New York called Panix, which is one of the first commercial ISPs. And so we started to see SIM floods back in 94. And then a little bit later than that, the directed broadcast um, uh, was called a Smurf attack, which was a reflection amplification attack, uh, became quite popular. And so the idea was that the attacker would spoof the um, broadcast IP um, of, of a particular subnet and, and target it. And he would send those ICMP messages to routers, to like Cisco, you know, AGS, and AGS plus routers and things like that. And, and the routers would turn around and dutifully respond, you know, um, and, and it would, it would, you know, cause an, it reflect, it would be, the attack would be reflected through the router and you would get lots and lots of answers back just for, you know, one packet request. And so this was actually the first abuse that we know about of networking gear to conduct DDoS attacks. It was the first reflection amplification attack that we really knew about. And that actually led Cisco to add the, um, no ICMP directed broadcast command to, to Cisco I, uh, IOS. And that was so in like 1997, 1998, something like that. It's pretty interesting that the AGS Plus even had enough firepower to cause that kind of problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you get enough of them involved, you're going to have enough firepower. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, that's actually part of the problem, too, because when we look at the reflection amplification attacks, not only is the, the victim, the intended victim or target of the attack affected, as well as intervening networks, but in many cases, the reflectors, amplifiers themselves 
you know, su suffer as well. And, and these are systems that are not owned by the attacker, but they are misconfigured and abusable, right? And so the actual, the act of abusing them can cause problems. And this was a, a big issue for Cisco um, with the routers, with this ICMP directed broadcast thing with the Smurf attacks. And um, so that it was actually instituted by Cisco as a um, self-protection me uh, me mechanism for the network infrastructure devices. Cool, cool. So that's Smurf. So what happened after that? Well, um, DDoS, you know, for fun and games primarily uh, is what, you know, where pe again, people get angry, you know, um, based on IRC chats and things like that. But then we started to see in the late 1990s around, you know, 98, 99, something like that, we started to see the emergence of DDoS extortion attacks. And um, basically the, the premise here was that there were some very early pioneers in, shall we say, adult entertainment. Um, on the internet and in online gambling and things of that nature. And the folks who set up these, uh, these websites where you could indulge in these different pastimes, typically uh, they weren't located uh, in the United States or in Europe. They would set up shop down in, in the Caribbean and they were making money hand over fist. And of course they wanted to keep a low profile, right? They're not members of the chamber of commerce, the JCs or anything. They, 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 they want to avoid the notice of, of, of law enforcement. And so some folks figured out. Yeah, They're not exactly. in Louisville. That's right. <laughs> and some criminals figured this out and said, Hey, you know, one of these gambling sites, you know, they had, they, they launched uh, these tournaments every so often. They'll announce a, you know, an online poker tournament or something like that, or Hey, these adult entertainment sites will have some kind of special sale or something. And so they started DDoSing. Um, the gambling sites and the adult entertainment sites and would knock them over. And then they would send an email message uh, demanding an extortion payment and say, Hey, you can pay us via Western union. You can pay us uh, when Eagle came out that it was very, uh, one of the first electronic currencies that was used for DDoS extortion payments. Say, Hey, you have to pay us, you know, and if you pay us, you know, we'll leave you alone. So it's, you know, an online version of the, of the neighborhood protection racket, you know, where the tough guy walks in and leans on the camera and says, Hey, this is a nice story out here. Being ashamed of something happened to it. Right. And so it's the, the, the same kind of thing on the internet and some of the ISPs, because there were, you know, there weren't a lot of large carriers, especially outside the United States. And so these are smaller regional ISPs. They tried to help as best they could using things like Ackles and, and things like that. And the attackers actually went after them. And said, "Look, if you stand in our way, um, trying to protect this this victim that we're trying to extort, we're going to take your network down and destroy your business." And so the ISP, some of them backed off, and some of them said, "You know, this sounds like a great idea." And so they decided to actually identify their own customers and provide all their networking information, you know, their cyber box <laughs> and everything, to the extortionists in return for a cut. And it's, so it's it's t classic takedown, you know. I mean, we could be talking about, um, you know, the mafia. Well, that's what it is, right? I mean, really, it yes. It's it's it, it, it's it's it, the new digital mafia, right? And and so we started to see these these extortion attacks, and um, you know, th th they've gotten a lot of press recently. Um, you know, in the last uh, three or four years, but they go back, you know, to, to the late 1990s. And so, you know, that kind of thing was going on. And then we started to see ideologically driven DDoS attacks. You know, people have some, you know, political or religious cause and decide to attack um, those with whom they disagree. And one of the earliest ones was kind of interesting. It was uh, what we call our participatory botnet. And what we mean by that is that the, the folks who were launching an attack against, I think this is, you know, protesting the G8 summit or something like that. Um, they actually created a, a website 
with a JavaScript application. And if you visited the website and clicked on the JavaScript application, then it would fire up your web browser and start just doing gets of URIs against the websites of these different um, governmental organizations and um, you know, large corporations that were viewed as being part of the evil G8 or whatever. This is a, a group called the Electro Hippies who did this. And, <laughs> and, and so the Electro Hippies... And, and were, they wore long light strings over their bodies, that, you know, and tied them to their hair and stuff to make them look hippie-ish. That's right. And this, this one was a little bit more difficult because this was like 2000, 2001. And um, application layer DDoS attacks on the web were a relatively new thing. And so, you know, figuring out how to detect this and classify it and, and trace it back and, and defend against it um, was challenging uh, for a lot. And then, you know, some very large corporations and, and prominent government websites. And so that was a, a, was a big change that we saw um, was, was the, that was the kickoff of, of ideologically driven DDoS attacks, which we still see to this day. Um, so so at, that, at that stage, though, they were just asking people to click on these links. They weren't actually trying to bot, like root their, their machines or something. They were just saying, if you agree with this ideologically, right. click on this link and it'll kick up a web browser. And while you're out eating lunch, you can be attacking your enemies. And, and we've actually saw an evolution of that very quickly where instead of asking people if they wanted to, you know, to, to, to commit these illegal activities, what they would do is they would go to some of the early um, HTTP or HTML based web forums that would like, you know, execute JavaScript and stuff. And they would do things like they would embed image source tags in, you know, hidden in the HTML code on these forums. And so when people would, you know, go to the forums, you know, maybe they're interested in cats or music or something like that. And they're reading through the forum posts, their browsers, you know, would go and grab the HTML and say, oh, well, I have a, an image tag here to go and grab this image from whatever this website is. And they would go do it. And this would actually be like a large, you know, picture or a PDF file or something like that on the website that the bad guys wanted to attack. And so uh, they would poison all these forum messages with these hidden, you know, tags to go and grab images and, and links wow. and things like that. And so just people just reading through the message boards would unintentionally, you know, without knowing it, their web browsers would be going and, and uh, attacking the websites. And so, the, you know, very, very, very quick evolution there in terms of um, the attacker capabilities. Wow, that's really cool. I'm doing all the talking here and I feel, I feel kind of bad. So yeah. No, 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 no. That's why you're here. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting because DDoS is one of those areas where you really have to think about the whole stack as network engineers. We typically think layer four and below. Uh, we only get above layer four if we're really brave or if we're working with firewalls that, that do app ID. Well, <laughs> you know, I figured I would use the more positive <laughs> attitude, but you're probably more accurate. Um, so there, there are mitigations that need to happen at each layer in the stack, right? Like what you were talking about with the, with the forums, right? The forum needs to not allow people to inject JavaScript, right? And that's, that's a way to kind of prevent prevent that. Um, but as network engineers, it's a really, really gnarly problem. And that's a really good point that you bring up because when we think about security, right, there are three fundamental aspects of, of information security. There's confidentiality, there's integrity and availability. And in my experience, about 99.99999% of all resources and attention in the security space are paid to confidentiality and integrity. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, 
One reason is that confidentiality and integrity, most of the different technologies and things that are used in those areas of security boiled down at some point to crypto. Now, crypto is actually difficult to get right, as everybody knows, you know, uh, but crypto is an easy um, concept that one can explain to non-specialist decision makers, right, in order to get resourcing for it. And so because it's based on crypto and the, the business people can understand it, I think that's one of the reasons that availability tends to get short shrift. Another reason is what you pointed out. Availability is hard. You have to understand um, the networking part of it. You have to understand the applications and the services. You have to understand, you know, control plane stuff like BGP and, you know, DNS, right, which, which um, are, are necessary to the functioning of the internet. You have to understand the application stacks. Um, you know, maybe you're looking at wireline broadband technology. Maybe you're looking at wireless broadband technology. Maybe you're looking at, at more complex attacks like reflection amplification attacks. And so you really have to have folks who have both uh, a depth you know, uh, of knowledge as well as a breadth of knowledge. And those folks are, are relatively hard to come by and they don't come cheaply. And so because uh, availability is inherently multidisciplinary and because it requires skilled and experienced people, um, it's, it's hard, it's difficult to do. And what I found, you know, I work for a security vendor, right? But in my experience, I would say about 90% of the real security value that anyone, any network operator gets um, is not based on the things that they buy. It's based on the things that they do. And that's why security in general, real security, and that's why availability in particular is hard. Because you can't just you know, go and buy some box or some blade from a vendor and throw it in your network and say, Hey, okay, I'm, you know, protected against DDoS attacks. No, you know, the design of your, uh, yeah, the, 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 fire, the firewall thing. I throw the firewall in and I'm secure, man, magic bullet done. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Uh, DDoS attacks are attacks against availability and or state stateful firewalls go down under DDoS attacks, just like that. And, you know, the general public, you know, if, if they think about internet security at all, They've been programmed to say, oh, we'll buy a firewall and stick that in your network and that takes care of all of your problems. Uh, stateful firewalls actually should never be deployed in front of any kind of server because by definition, every connection that's coming into those servers is a new connection, right? And so there is no state to inspect. And the state tables, you know, even the biggest, baddest commercial firewall you can, you can buy or the biggest one you can build, the state tables will fill up very quickly under even a very moderate DDoS attack and they'll fall over. And the, the fact that, that some folks put these stateful firewalls in front of their servers or you know, in front of their data centers means that it's a lot easier to DDoS those servers or DDoS those data centers than if they were naked with you know, absolutely nothing in front of them at all. And so you know, the design comes into this, the operational practice uh, comes into this, and the other thing about um, DDoS defense, you know, when we're talking about maintaining availability, is you can't finesse it, right? You can't go spend a bunch of money on software from some vendor and go deploy it all and say, oh, well, you know, now I'm PCIe compliant and we're secure and, you know, and nobody can contravene you because either the web server is either up and it's serving web requests or it's not. The DNS server is answering queries or it's not. And so, uh, availability is the most difficult aspect of security um, to really achieve 
but it's also the most transparent and the most um, visible, right? And you can understand what your ROI is because either your stuff is up and running or it's not. And so in that, and that's one of the reasons I work in availability because there's no ambiguity. Either you're doing it right or you're not. <laughs> so Roland, more recently we've had this, we talked a little bit about this, that there's an interaction between owning rooting machines and things like that and DDoS attacks. And often that's unintentional, right? But we seem to see this a lot more recently where people are actually building things like uh, Meraki and things like this in order to own machines, in order to do, can you bring us up to date a little bit? I think we stopped what in uh, the mid nineties or something, which oh, is still like uh, 30 years ago. This is a very long subject. And I yeah, <laughs> we're still it. 20 years ago, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so, so, so um, initially with DDoS attacks, what we would primarily see is the attackers would make use of whatever resources they could get a hold of. Like they would break into shell accounts, for example, and then they would use exploits or password guessing and, you know, or what have you to be able to get root on the boxes. They could actually launch spoof DDoS attacks that they wanted, or even if they couldn't get root, you know, non-spoof still works very well. Um, and so initially attackers were, were pretty much, you know, scavenging resources, but with the rise of online commerce and, you know, credit card usage online, and of course now we have cryptocurrencies and things like that. What we often see is that the bad guys actually go and prepare resources that they're going to use to leverage DDoS attacks. And they do this in a couple of ways. Um, first of all, they tend to, in some cases, they actually pay for either co-located servers or VPSs in what we call bulletproof hosters. These are um, essentially hosters and co-locators who are friendly to criminals. They you know, don't enforce any kind of source address validation. They don't respond to abuse requests and things like that. This. So, so no and BCP38. No BCP38, no BCP anything, right? And yeah. and these and these these uh, networks are generally located in regions right, where the BCP rule of law really holds. Uh, Anti-spoofing source address validation to to validate the source address of packets that are ingressing your network, you know, from your customers essentially. I, um, I assumed Yvonne was going to ask that, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's one of the one of the one of the, the BCPs for best current practices that we try to you know encourage which, all network operators to 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 right, implement. which often isn't deployed by the way for many reasons. Um, it really should be deployed on all edges, um, even your edge as an enterprise you should deploy BCP38. And if you're curious about this, you should go look at the manners, M-A-N-R-S um, effort by the Internet Society. There's an entire website out there that talks about BCP38 and other things you can do to do source address validation. Um, and so even enterprises should do this on their inbound side um, as much as they can. The main reason you run into people who don't deploy it is uh, – First of all, it's more complex than it seems if you're dual homing. There's a lot of problems around asymmetric traffic flows in BCP38 and source address filtering and source address um, validation. The other reason is, is because it's just a performance hog. Very few ASICs, if any, I don't think there are any ASICs that actually do BCP38 native. Uh, they have to do a recycle or a second lookup. And so you just end up eating a lot of performance on high-speed links. And I know Roland wants to say something to that, so... Well, well, you do have some, some ASICs who, who don't necessarily recirculate, but every feature that you turn on costs, right? Yeah. And of course, the most effective place to, to do source address validation is on the ingress, right? So right. for example, if you're a broadband um, uh, operator, a wireline operator, and you're doing cable modems or DSL or fiber with the home or whatever, you actually want to, to do the, the um, source address validation as close down 
you know, to your customers you can, hopefully within your CPE, if you're managing the CPE for them, if not, you know, next layer up at the customer aggregation layer. Um, but yeah, there are challenges in some topologies um, with it, uh, even within a, you know, a data center, for example, where you have a bunch of servers in, uh, in racks plugged into switches, depending on, on the, the, the functionalities you have in those servers, sometimes you can't necessarily enforce port level source address validation, you know, if you have demotion and, and things like that going on in the data center. So um, it takes a little, little, little bit of work to do this, um, but that's not actually um, the, the biggest problem that we see. I mean, you know, we want to, obviously we want folks to, to, to um, uh, perform source address validation, but there are things like protecting the network infrastructure itself. Um, you want folks to, to actually understand that their routers and their layer three switches can and, and will be targeted by attackers directly, often because if those routers and layer three switches, load balancers, what have you, if they haven't been hardened to make them resilient against CS attacks, it's often easier to take them down than it is to take down the servers. And so we want folks to implement the different best current practices, things like um, um, IACLs, what we call infrastructure ACLs, control plane policing, things of this nature in order to harden the routers and the, and the switches so that even if they come under attack, they can stay up. Uh, and it's really, really important. Um, we've almost reached the point, I believe, where mo we, most of the network operators, whether they're ISPs or enterprises, we're, we're behind course in enterprise, but most of the big network <laughs> operators who are gonna do this stuff have already done it. And now we're, we're starting to move in, into, into the, the, the realm of, of diminishing returns uh, to a certain degree, and we have to look at other uh, potential solutions. But it's it's definitely something that we, there are technologies um, to to deal with this features and functionality. But people have to be have to to number one understand what the problem is. Number two, understand that there are solutions to the problem. And number three, be able to actually deploy the solutions to those problems in a situationally appropriate manner, so they don't actually make things worse. So, so Yvonne, there's your key or your cue to tell Roland he needs to come back to a standard network collective and just talk about DDoS protection. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because my, in the enterprise, my experience with DDoS services that you purchase are that they break your VPNs. Um, well, there's actually, I can tell you what the problem is with that right there is because, <laughs> um, because enterprises don't, number one, they don't tend to know a lot about, and generally speaking, um, there are exceptions, but many enterprises don't know a lot about CCP IP. And there are provisioning issues with a lot of the commercial DDoS mitigation services where yes. um, they either don't think of what questions to ask or they ask and they can't get the answers from the enterprise uh, networking people. But it's, it's, it's path into you. Um, it's, it's, it's PMTUD because most of the um, commercial DDoS mitigation services and full disclosure, we'd Arbor make the gear that powers most of the commercial DDoS mitigation services on the planet. And we also offer, offer our own as well. But most of these commercial DDoS mitigation services that are you know, across the internet, um, when they divert your traffic that's destined for your net blocks in you know, via BGP announcements or they redirect via uh, DNS and they bring um, all the traffic, both good and bad, that's destined for your cyber blocks in the mitigation center. And then they run them through these intelligent DDoS mitigation systems to, to scrub out the bad traffic and let the good traffic through. Well, they created a routing loop, right? And so, you know, because they're advertising your prefixes and they need to be able to re-inject that traffic and have it go on down, you know, to the enterprise, um, you know, public public facing data center networks. And so what they typically do is they re-inject the clean traffic using GRE tunnels, 
But what people don't think about is that when, when you're using GRE tunnels with a, you know, 1500 by standard packet, um, right. that you have some, 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 some bytes that are used up the GRE tunnel encapsulation. And so what that means is that those enterprises need to actually set their um, MTU values uh, to, to 1476 and their um, TCP MSS values, they need to set them to what, 1436, I believe, to make up for the TCP header. And so then um, all the traffic will flow smoothly and the return traffic will, you know, will, will go back and everything will be great. But a lot of the DDoS mitigation folks don't think about this. A lot of the enterprises don't know about it. And so when they go into DDoS mitigation, they end up with all these TCP problems because they, they are filtering out all ICMP, which they shouldn't be doing. Right. They should they should certainly allow uh, what type 11 code code three, um, for example, and, and also TCLX free. So PMTUD will work and they haven't set their their path into you values on their interfaces. They haven't set their TCP MSS values um, in their applications. And as a result, they have these problems. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And earlier you talked about um, it, security is as much about what you do as what you buy. And, uh, and, and I think that's the challenge, too, because uh, there is no solution for DDoS that doesn't involve tuning and understanding your traffic flows and, and those sorts of things. Um, I'd, I'd like to know, kind of based on where we've been, especially with uh, these new botnets, um, uh, is it Mirai, Mirai, They're actually not new. We first saw, we saw the first one back in 2007. Keep going. Sure, but 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 specifically the IoT botnets, which IoT is a term bugs me anyway because they're just devices on your network, which we've always had. But you know this proliferation. proliferation. <laughs> but you couldn't market it that way, Yvonne. <laughs> I, I know. But but we've hey, got. A, I need my refrigerator on the internet. Right. Exactly. We've got this proliferation of relatively insecure devices, even by normal standards, and they're everywhere, and 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 they're being marshaled as little technical armies to attack resources. <laughs> what what? <laughs> I know this is the history of networking, but but what do you see like? in the next five to 10 years, you know, or, or maybe even tell us, and, yeah, or maybe even tell ahead. us how this came to be and then tell us what you think the future looks okay. like. Sorry, am so, I jumping so, ahead? Yeah, <laughs> this is, the, look, this is a long topic and Russ can tell you, I can go all day about this, right? But I'm kind of a monomaniac <laughs> that way, but we actually first, I mean, first of all, Russ is right. Um, any device, I mean, you know, a router or a switch is a, an embedded device, right? It's an embedded computer system with a special purpose operating system that does special things. Um, your mobile phones. These are embedded devices as well. And so um, we've had devices, you know, as long as there's been an internet, there's been embedded devices on them. But what we've seen is the proliferation of these devices, right? Um, a lot of us have these different things uh, on our home networks. And in particular with like, small businesses, <laughs> what they like to do is they, you know, they, they say, okay, well, I need to, to have CCTV camera coverage to get my insurance rates down, right? but I don't want to pay for an expensive professional solution. And I don't want to pay for a WAN between my retail locations. And so what I'll do is I'll go buy this commercial grade, these commercial grade, you know, IP based CCTV cameras. And I'll have, D I have DSL lines going to my store locations anyway, because I'm doing, you know, credit card ver uh, verification and inventory stuff across the internet and the VPN. And so why don't I just go ahead and stick in these CCTV cameras and then at the HQ location, I'll put in a DVR to record all the CCTV fees, but I don't want to pay 
for a WAN. So I'll just stick them on my network. Well, wait a minute though, I'm using RFC 1918 spaces. I don't want to pay for public IPs either. So I have net. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll do a static net translation for each of the cameras, right? That's sitting behind the net at the store. And for the DVR, that's at the corporate HQ, I'll do a static net translation for that too, so that they can all use the internet as a WAN to send all my security video. And hey, this is not a computer, this is a thing, right? I didn't read the manual. Surely it comes secure out of the box. <laughs> well, it doesn't. And so this is how the majority of the embedded devices get compromised is they are actually, in many cases, behind NAS, but they have been um, granted um, um, static NAT translations to use the internet as a WAN. And of course, they come with default passwords and exploits and things of this nature. And we've also seen, you know, we see the home and, and SMB broadband routers that are subsumed into these IoT botnets as well. Now, most of, of the IoT botnets that have been built since 2007 that we've seen are leveraging the fact that these devices are have extremely insecure Linux images with, um, you know, uh, embedded, well-known embedded credentials, uh, and they have web admin panels running old versions of PHP that can be exploited, and they're actually listening on the internet for it, or you can trick somebody into, you know, downloading uh, an email and clicking on it, and it, it actually has a JavaScript exploit or something that goes and looks at the the default gateway for the admin page, you know, that's inside the NAT and grants access. So either way, um, these devices are recruited and subsumed um, into botnets, and and they can typically do between like nine to twelve kpps per node, and then you have you know hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, half a million. Uh, of these devices at once. And uh, they, they can pack a fairly powerful punch, especially when they're orchestrated to do uh, reflection amplification attacks like SSTP reflection amplification or DNS reflection amplification or things of this nature. And so this is, we, we, we've been seeing the IoT botnet since 2007. They really started to come into their own about four years ago where what some folks did was they decided to uh, build a commercial DDoS for hire service um, <laughs> called a booter or a stressor service because it's supposedly you're going to stress test your network, you know, to make sure it's resilient <laughs> to DDoS attack. And of course, you know, you're going to, you, nobody's going to use that, right? And you know, there have been DDoS for hire for a long time, but these folks actually leveraged IoT devices so that they had a, a pretty wide array of, um, of devices under their control to launch the attack traffic around the world. And they put in self-service web panels. And so, you know, you could actually, if you wanted to DDoS someone, you could go to the, the web portal, you can create an account, log in, all the different attack options, you know, attack durations and how much it costs. And you can, you know, pay like five bucks to DDoS somebody for a couple of hours, or you can, you know, go with a subscription plan. You can pay like 30 bucks and get unlimited DDoS attacks per month. And they have customer support, you know, and, 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 and consulting uh, available. And, you know, I'll tell you, last last year we saw about 4 million. You're the DDoS wrong business, attacks. Russ. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, you know, and, and there's no capex for this, right? Because they're actually leveraging other people's resources, right? It's all you know, misappropriated, uh, you know, you know uh, resources to do this. We saw about four million DDoS attacks last year. We're on track. I think we're going to see close to seven million DDoS attacks this year. And I would say that ninety percent of those DDoS attacks are actually the result of online gaming disputes 
where people get angry at each other because they're playing online games. And so they launch DDoS attacks to attack their opponents, sometimes to attack the game networks. And almost all of those DDoS attacks that are related to online gaming disputes are actually launched via these DDoS for hire booter stressor services that are built primarily on top of IoT devices. I wonder um, if you could hire the, 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 this company to deny your service itself. Will they let you do that? <laughs> so, so some of them, some of them are actually. It might be worth five dollars of my money. <laughs> some of them, some, some of them are quite clever, and they actually exclude certain IP address ranges, like of government agencies and law enforcement, and you know sometimes certain countries because they don't want to attract attention, right? So they won't allow their service to be used for that. And so we're seeing this today. Where are we going with this in the future? We're seeing something like five to six million embedded devices uh, added to the internet every day. And what, um, did you say every day? Yeah. Yes. Day. Every day. Every yes. day. And, yes. <laughs> That's a lot of devices and, to read. I mean, those guys yeah. have got to get to work. <laughs> but you don't need a, you just need to find that one zero day. Right. And then you've got several million. Yeah. That's you've right. got 5 and, million every day. Right. And, and, and what we're also seeing um, is besides this, we're, we're seeing kind of an evolution in the thinking of these folks. So you guys are familiar with the ransomware, you know, that's a uh, malware that encrypts the file system on the, on uh, all the, the SSD drives and hard drives. And then um, the, it, it extorts the user to, to pay with Bitcoin so that he can, he can uh, get his files unencrypted supposedly. Right. Well, what we've seen very recently is we found an example of some ransomware that also has some vestigial DDoS capability, uh, DDoS capabilities built into it. It was uh, very much a work in progress. It could only uh, launch a couple of different DDoS attacks against the configure subnet on the host in question. But these are typically different groups of criminals, right? Like you, know, you have your white collar criminals and you have your Murphy artists and you have your, you know, your bookies and you have your uh, muggers and, you know, and so on. Now you have specialization in the criminal world and you have the same thing in the online criminal <laughs> underground. But, but here we're seeing folks who've been doing the, 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 the malware base, uh, the malware encryption based extortion, thinking about DNS attacks. And these are folks who are focused not on the public facing, you know, websites and DNS servers and things like that, but they're focused on the internal enterprise. And then we found something else that was very interesting. We found a, a Trojan that was a, about a year and a half old that had been repurposed. It was a Windows Trojan that used several different exploits. But what it did was it would actually scan looking for IoT embedded devices. Is this running on a Windows system? Okay. But it's looking for embedded IoT devices. And when it finds one that looks like it's vulnerable, it'll then start loading different images to see if it can guess the architecture and subsume the, the IoT devices it finds in into an IoT botnet. That's a, we call that a seeder. It's a botnet seeder. And this is a Windows-based one. And so if you think about all the consumer-grade um, IoT devices that have been used to launch these CDOS attacks, I can tell you that there are orders of magnitude more embedded devices on internal enterprise networks, you know, whether they're copy machines, their printers, their scanners, their thermostats, their IP phones. And in many, many cases, the enterprises have done a very poor job of number one, you know, assessing the devices for their security posture. Number two, keeping them up to date. Number three, deploying them on separate, separate subnets and VLANs and all the BCPs for that kind of thing. They haven't done it. And now these devices are not typically exposed to the internet. But now that we have 
the fact that the folks who are attacking enterprises with this ransomware malware are starting to think about DDoS attacks. And now we have this window seeder for Mirai. All of a sudden, it's, it's becoming a lot easier for the IoT botnets to leap across the corporate yeah. firewall. All it takes is somebody who's logged in with a VPN right, or who has a Windows machine and carries it in, you know, this compromise with the seeder and carry it inside the enterprise. And then that leads us to two huge problems. Outbound DDoS attacks can actually be just as devastating to endpoint organizations as inbound DDoS attacks. And we've seen this many, many times with broadband ISPs, with enterprises, when they have botted hosts that are used to launch, you know, they're being controlled by the bad guys to launch DDoS attacks somewhere on or the internet. March Madness, for example. Yeah, March Madness. Right, right. <laughs> they, 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 yeah, <laughs> that's right. They, they launch these outbound DDoS attacks and they fill up the state tables and the firewall and that, and they fall over, they fill up the transit links, right? And so we've, we've seen this for a long time. But now that these people who think about the, the ransomware and who think about the enterprise and who are the kind of people who will sub, get into an enterprise network and start looking for the line of business applications and looking for the ACH check processing um, bank transfer stuff and who are looking at the intellectual property, they're starting to think about DDoS attacks too. And they have all these legions of IoT devices that nobody pays any attention to that aren't loaded down with all these useless software agents that supposedly will protect against every you know piece of malware or botnet known to man, even though they're actually mostly useless, right? And so what we're going to see in the next 18 months, I would predict 18, 24 months, is orchestrated DDoS attacks that don't take place across the internet at all. They take place solely on the intranet of enterprises who have these IoT devices that have been compromised and subsumed into botnets. And the bad guys, they're, they're, they're used to penetrating enterprises, right? They do their homework, they identify the line of business applications, the sales applications, the inventory applications, and they launch a DDoS attack and take it down. And of course, the enterprise people run around, what's going on, what's going on, what's happening? Then they send the extortion demand saying, hey, we're gonna you know, stop you from making your numbers for the quarter you know, and, and shipping your, your products unless you pay us. You know, and it, this or, or, or worse, or worse, a hospital. A hospital, anything like that. And right. so then these organizations are going to run to their ISPs. They're going to say, help us, help us. We, you know, we're, we're getting these DDoS extortion messages. And, you know, we got DDoS. ISPs going to look. They're going to say, well, we didn't see DDoS attacks, you know, coming from the Internet, you know, to, to, to down, you know, your transit link or to your, you know, colo cage or, or what have you. And so you're going to actually see these very targeted internal only DDoS attacks. And even though those of us who've been doing this for a long time uh, have always preached to the enterprises that, hey, you have to harden your internal networks the way that you should be hardening your public facing yeah. networks and implement the IACLs and the control plane policing and you know passive your 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 IGP on your on your access networks and you know implement um, source address validation via DHCP snoofing and IP source guard and all these different, you know, kinds of things. They haven't done it. And so there's this whole new ripe greenfield area for the attackers of intranet DDoS attacks that I think is going to be enabled by the fact that we are now seeing um, the attackers who have already proven that they can get inside the enterprises and cause havoc. Now they're thinking about DDoS and they're looking at cross-platform Cedars to get the IoT malware in there behind the corporate firewall. And that's pretty scary. That is. Wow. Segmentation so, matters. 
Yep, segmentation lateral, lateral movement, you know. Lateral movement gotta, makes a big difference. Yep. Well, isn't that That's the right. same thing that the, um, the calls the Iran's government uh, nuclear to nuclear program to get destroyed because they they um, they knew they were using a certain type of uh, spinner and they and they PLC controller. That's right. And that's the same theory there, right? That's the exact same thing. It's, it's, it's the same theory. Uh, the, those were supposedly delivered in person by um, outsourced technicians with thumb drives. But this is just taking that and, and, and automating it. But yeah, it's the same concept. That's right. All right. Wow. Well, it's a dark and scary world out there. It is. Well, a lot more we, it you know, is. There's a lot more to talk about in terms of DDoS. But, but this, is, this is the big thing that I'm really worried about. And I've actually spent some time speaking at different conferences. And some of my colleagues have been speaking at some of the networking conferences to tell people, hey, you really need to take this seriously because uh, your ISP is not necessarily going to be able to help you. And we've been talking to ISP saying, hey, your end customers um, may be subject to this. And you need to start thinking about, do you have the ability, the ability to actually go down inside their internal networks and offer them DDoS detection and classification and traceback and mitigation on the internet. And so we're, we're seeing those conversations start up, which is a good thing, but I'm, I'm worried that we're going to see some, some folks um, hit by this kind of stuff before a lot of, a, a lot of uh, operators have good solutions in place. So tell us a little bit about DOTS and uh, what's going on there, because I know you're deeply involved in that and a little bit of the history there, because that's a big DDoS area as well. Sure. So DOS is um, is an ITF effort. It stands for DDoS Open Threat Signaling. Um, and the idea here is that the various companies that make different uh, DDoS mitigation systems, like you know Arbor and, and other companies, and, that, and provide uh, services like iDefense uh, well, and things like that. Yes. It, all the MSSPs who do this um, and 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 transit ISP, you know, transit uh, providers who, who do it, they use solutions that are typically proprietary. And so if you, know, if you have an Arbor DDoS solution, then it's generally speaking, although we help you leverage your network sometimes, it's an all Arbor solution, or if you have a Radware or you know, what have you. And what DOS is about is about defining a standards-based um, set of protocols and messaging that allow any type of device to potentially participate in uh, DDoS mitigation activity. A signal will say, hey, I need help, you know, from the DDoS attack and to signal the upstream transit provider or the MSSP or what have you, uh, and, and say, hey, I need, uh, need uh, assistance mitigating a DDoS attack and, you know, okay, the attack's still ongoing and, and you know, get status messages back from the MSSP to say, hey, you know, we're, we're still mitigating and the, the client says, hey, we're still under attack. And to automate a lot of this stuff that's done manually, there have been efforts in the past to do this. I worked on one other when I was at Cisco. Um, but this is probably the third or fourth effort um, that I've seen to, to try to standardize the signaling mechanisms to communicate the need for DDoS mitigation and also to communicate status messaging um, back and forth. And this one's moving along pretty well. We're making some good progress. I don't think we're going to be ready for working group last call with all of the, all of the drafts in Singapore in a couple of weeks uh, at IETF 100, but certainly by IETF 101. 
um, I believe. But that, that's, that's the, the thrust of it. Um, things always get interesting in the IETF because a lot of the people <laughs> who attend IETF meetings don't actually have jobs. And, you know, so they, 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 they don't actually, you know, have to rub two packets He's together. talking about us, Donald. <laughs> no, 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 no. Pre- present company accepted. A lot of people, especially when it's something that this deems sexy, like security and DDoS, right? Um, they, they're they, they they for themselves. No, and, and they want to participate, and, it's, and and the IETF ethos is, you know, hey, you know, we want everyone to talk about it, and so you get a lot of looky loos and a lot of um, uh, a lot of suggestions that aren't necessarily really directly applicable to the problem set, and that, that's always an issue with IETF. But we have a good uh, core group of people who have really been working hard to define the protocols and the messaging formats, and you know, and, and the use cases and things like that, and. And so we're, we're a little bit behind where we wanted to be, but that's also typical as part of the, the IETF process. And so hopefully we'll have 1.0 uh, ready, ready for consideration uh, pretty shortly. Some folks have already been playing with uh, implementations and have given us some good feedback. Um, and we, we've taken that feedback and incorporated it into uh, some of the best practices and actually some of the, the messaging um, specifications and, and so forth. And so the idea is that we want every, all these different security solutions to be able to plug and play in the DDoS world. But more importantly, we also want to be able to instrument anything and allow it to request DDoS mitigation assistance. So if you have a web server, for example, right? Maybe you have, uh, you're running a patch, you have mod security uh, running on it and it can detect that, hey, the web server is under a DDoS attack. The web server itself should be able to actually reach out and say, hey, I'm under attack. You know, I, I need defense. I'm a web server and, and um, I need DDoS defense. Um, you know, you can see home CPE devices potentially doing this. You can even see uh, a mobile, a mobile. Uh, your refrigerator. Uh, yeah, yeah, your refrigerator. <laughs> you know, what have you? Um, and and so we, we want to really, really broaden the number of types of devices and applications and services that can actually recognize when they're under a DDoS attack and can then summon um, assistance. Is the idea. Summon Roland. I get summoned a lot as it is. I kind of get DDoS myself sometimes. <laughs> but, but um, you know, the idea My refrigerator calls rolling. <laughs> That's right. And, and we, want to, we want to automate as much of this as possible. And, you know, that provisioning problem that we were talking about earlier, where in many cases, either the, the commercial DDoS mitigation search providers don't know what questions to ask really, you know, properly provision the DDoS mitigation service, or they know what questions to ask, but the end customer doesn't know the answers. Um, we believe that one of the ancillary benefits of DOS will be that um, the DOS agents that, that are client agents that are, you know, installed on the networks, on the devices, in the applications can actually, there'll be a registration process where they register for the DDoS mitigation service provider, and they'll actually describe themselves and say, hey, you know, I'm a web server and listening on TCP80, TCP443, you know, I'm, I'm, I need this kind of network access profile. And so a lot of that provisioning uncertainty that leads to subpar DDoS mitigation experiences, hopefully we can automate that away. Hopefully. Cool. Excellent. So I think we've run to our hour, Yvonne. Yep. We're close on time. We we're close on time. Yeah. So what well, we should we do. Have covered, but but I, I hope I hope it was useful. Um, no, no, I think so. In fact, I think maybe we should get you back on sometime, Roland. Maybe on a standard network collective show, just to talk about. Um, maybe Yvonne can set it up where you can just talk about DDoS mitigation in the enterprise, and uh, maybe Phil and uh, and Jordan can beat you up for an hour on 
DDoS mitigation <laughs> and how to protect your television and your, your refrigerator because you don't want it ordering milk when you don't want it to order milk. <laughs> Could be a problem. Could be a problem. All right. Well, thanks, Roland, for coming on. Is there any place anybody can get in touch with you other than just the Arbor blog? Do you have your own blog? Have I not talked you into blogging yet? Is that the problem? <laughs> well, you know, it gets back to those of us who have jobs. No, no, I'm just kidding. But, 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 but um, you know, I, I actually do a ton of writing um, in my work. And sometimes you'll see the, the web blog post I make on the Arbor Networks web blog. Um, I don't really do the whole social media thing, uh, per se. I'm just kind of old fashioned that way, but folks can get a, get a hold of me via email or Dobbins at arbor.net. If you go to arbornetworks.com, I work in the ACERT team, A-S-E-R-T team in, in Arbor. We have our own separate weblog. And so you'll see some of my articles here. I'm very active on industry mailing lists and, and that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, I wanted to thank you so much for having me on your show today. I really oh. enjoyed it. A lot of good, good questions and, and, and commentary and things and, you know, this is a this is a subject that can 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 we can talk about it all day and all night, but it's really important. And, and I guess the the one positive side effect I will say um, of the trends that we've been seeing is that now the term DDoS has made it up to the C-suite level, right? And folks are starting to understand that as part of their business continuity planning, that they really need to you know they they talk about man-made disasters, you know, and natural disasters and that kind of thing. Well, DDoS attack is like a man-made disaster. And so as part of business continuity planning, um, DDoS defense and resiliency in the face of attack needs to be um, resourced as part of the business continuity plan. So I guess yeah. that's that's one positive aspect of it. Now that's really cool. So Donald, have you started blogging yet? No. <laughs> ah, what am I going to do with you, man? I don't oh, know. Gee, <laughs> so where can we find you, Donald, other than just uh, at Cumulus or in free range routing? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at me, not you, Sharp. Okay. And Yvonne, Yvonne, everybody knows how to find you. Yvonne is famous. We don't have to say anything about Yvonne. Yeah, Yvonne's <laughs> famous. Infamous, famous, it's the same thing. Yeah, I, I blog at esharp.net and you can find me on Twitter at, at Sharp Network. Cool. And you can always find the Network Collective at the Network Collective, and you can find the History of Networking. We're trying to do two of these a month. It just depends on when Yvonne runs out of energy and Jordan runs out of energy at the end of every month. How many we get Because Russ never runs out of energy. <laughs> Yvonne actually saw me buried, I think. It, it has happened maybe once <laughs> in the history of Russ White. <laughs> So, yeah, cool. Well, thanks for hanging out with us today, Roland, and everybody else. And uh, come back and see us at the Network Collective. Thanks. Thanks, Roland. Thank you.